This is Nicole Deffenbaugh. If you are enjoying the podcast, we invite you to tell your friends and family and like us on Facebook at Health Stories Podcast. I was in the exam room when the physician started asking my 92-year-old mom questions that were on the mini mental state exam which includes a lot of different questions about orientation, word memory, number calculation. And I was shocked when my mom didn't know the county that she lived in or the President of the United States. And this was a very smart woman who was up to date on all current affairs. And I realized that she had dementia. And then it made sense to me on why she had been acting. Welcome to Health Stories, interviews inside the healthcare system. I'm Nicole Deffenbaugh, and we are here to tell you, the listeners, about insights and tips from clinicians, patients, healthcare providers, and loved ones who have navigated our complex U.S. healthcare system. I am delighted to be joined by Barbara Lewis today, and she's going to be talking about ambiguous loss. So thank you for joining the podcast, Barbara. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me, Nicole. Okay, so you were in the doctor's office, your mom was unable to answer some basic questions, and that was when you, is that when you realized that she had dementia? Yes, I was in shock. I think there's 20 something questions and 17 of them she couldn't answer. And I realized that for years and years she had hid this from me. I'd say probably at least five years. I had no idea that she had dementia. Mm. Yeah, we had another guest on the podcast a while back, and I want to reference that as well, um, who's talking about the challenges um, with caring for a parent. And so thinking about um, all of the baby boomers, for example, um, you know, that we have in our society today and the challenges that children have caring for their parents. Um, And dementia, Alzheimer's, those are particularly challenging um, diseases. So um, what was that like for you when you had the doctor, you know, diagnose her and confirm, I'm guessing at this time, that she had dementia? Well, I realized that she probably wouldn't be able to live independently any longer. She had been in a wonderful place for 10 years that I always called the resort whenever I visited her. But I realized that she would have to move into the skilled nursing facility or the assisted facility. So she came out of the hospital. She was only in for a couple of days. And she went into skilled nursing for an evaluation. And she was very depressed. She was sleeping all the time, and she wouldn't get out of bed. And they suggested to me that I bring a few of her pictures or various things that she would recognize. But I wanted to wait until the evaluation, and I would find out exactly where she was going to live, whether she was going to stay in skilled nursing or if she was going to be in the assisted facility. And they decided that she should be in skilled nursing. And I did bring down a few things, and she protested. She says, no, I don't want anything in the room. Don't bring anything here. 
But while she was out to lunch one day, I brought everything down that I could possibly fit into her unit. And she came back from lunch, and she was thrilled. She mm. was so happy to see everything. Mm. So it sounds like you had to do it when she was outside of the room, so she wasn't watching you bring these things in. That's right. Is is that typical? I mean, what have, what have you learned about um, the reasoning behind doing that? You know, I don't know what it is with everybody else, but I think with my mom, she just didn't want to see everything. She didn't want to see me working and bringing the stuff. So I did it while she was at lunch, and it worked out fine. And then I had arranged with the staff to come in during the afternoon and talk about the pogos, the furniture, and all the pieces and comment on them. And, of course, she really loved that, you know, asking her questions about the china that she had collected or whatever. What, what a great idea. Um, so let me get this straight. So you went to the staff and you said, just want to let you know, I'm bringing some things in that are, you know, mementos, keepsakes, important things to my mom. Could you, what did you say? Could you say something? Could you mention it? Like, what did you say to them? Yeah, could you come by and talk about them or compliment my mom on the various pieces because she's been so depressed and just living in the bed all these days that mm -hmm. I think she would love it if you could engage her in conversation. And they did. They all came in and they talked and my mom was just thrilled to be talking about everything. Wow. So it was such a transformational change in her. And I realized the importance of whenever there's a move to surround the person with things with which they're familiar. And even in a hospital, probably, to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there's actually a lot of uh, studies, research, you know, information out there that talks about the importance of having someone's belongings with them. For example, um, you know, even bringing someone's slippers or their pajamas in so they're not in a hospital gown, if that's permissible. Um, and it's also important given diversity too. So recognizing people of different cultures, backgrounds, you know, having an important piece of um, article or clothing or item um, really does make a difference, not only in people's happiness, but also in their healing. Um, so when you mentioned the hospital, I thought that was an important thing to note because there, there definitely is a lot of truth to that. And similarly, um, as people get older and also recognizing too with dementia, I, I, one of the things I want to just go back a little bit, Barbara, is um, I've heard many people say, and, and you know, I don't talk a lot about my own personal family members, but my grandmother um, had dementia, and she was also in her 90s as it, as it progressed, and she was very against moving out of her house, and we realized a big part of that was the lack of familiarity. She had gotten so used to knowing where everything was, and her community was there, and everybody was in that area, it was hard for her to leave. Um, and so what, what was that like for you, again, transitioning your mom, you know, into new places? She lived in Fort Myers, Florida, and I was in Los Angeles. And I decided oh. at that time not to move her to Los Angeles hmm. because people had told me that they didn't know if she would survive the move, that it would hmm. be very chaotic and especially with dementia, any kind of change is really traumatic. Mm -hmm. So I instead travel once a month for three years to Florida to visit her. 
Wow. So what was that like for you to travel every month for three years? I enjoyed it. I actually loved to fly. I was a pilot. I grew up in the Air Force. Oh. And I got huge amount of frequent flyer miles. <laughs> That's good. So I'm one of the few people that actually looks forward to flying and getting on a plane and everything that goes with it. And I heard that you did that because you you had found out yourself and recognized how important it was for her to stay um, where she lived. Well, one of the things I did to actually delete that distance was I set up an old laptop in her room where she sat, and I went in remotely to the laptop, and then I called myself on Skype with audio, and I called her on her hearing aid phone that she had. And I did that twice a day, in the morning and in the afternoon, so that she'd see me. And my hope was that she would never forget who I was, and she never yeah. did. Yeah. Well, I want to go back to that. So, <laughs> you you called her in Skype twice a day, but did did you leave her computer on and Skype on all day, basically? Yes, I did. Oh, well, okay. So she. The, so, so Skype was not. I. I opened Skype and I called myself, but she was always connected to the internet. Yes. Oh, okay. So you never had like a, you know, shortage or there was some sort of electricity issue or she never turned her computer off. It was just always on so you could always call. There were issues. Oh, okay. The activities director was very accommodating and he would go in and restart it sometimes. Okay had unplugged it by mistake, and he would plug it back in. But she never touched the computer. She couldn't. She didn't know how to work it out after a while. So when you called her, didn't she have to She has to press a button for your, to answer the call, right? No, the call came in on the phone, so she answered the phone. So oh, oh, oh. hearing okay. a phone that was special oh. for her lack of hearing. Okay. And then she would watch me on the computer. Oh, I see what you're saying. I'm sorry. Okay, now I got it. Okay, so you were calling her on the phone and then she would see you. Right. Yeah. So we just use Skype for the video. So I use, remotely, I use GoToMeeting. Yeah. That's how I Skyped into her. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I used GoToMyPC. Oh, okay. So I voted into her computer. Okay. So go. And then I called myself on Skype. Okay, so go to my PC, and then you called yourself on Skype. Yes. Okay, that makes sense. Excellent. I love all of the tips. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say I'm surprised that more people aren't doing that. My other option that I was thinking of was buying a robot, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, one of these robots that walks around or that wheels around, and so I could go to lunch with her. It got a little too complicated, so I decided to use the Skype and the hearing aid phone. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, um, so it sounds like, uh, Barbara, you've, you've got a lot of uh, tips and things that you've figured out over the years about um, you know, ways to stay connected with your mom and, and things to do um, in order to help her. And I really want to spend most of our time talking about that um, because I think for many people, You know, even though there's a lot of attention in some ways uh, about sort of Alzheimer's awareness or dementia awareness, 
Um, and a lot of people have heard of these terms. You know, these, I wouldn't say, are unfamiliar terms. But what we don't have, and I think that's really the importance of this podcast for people who are listening, is to recognize that it is very common um, for individuals that um, to have dementia, Alzheimer's, or memory loss in different capacities, whether it's, you know, technically dementia or memory loss for other reasons. Um, but we don't really talk about the effect that it has on people. And um, one of the things that I really appreciated and why I wanted you to come on the podcast is because you figured out the, the little things that mean a lot. I, I kind of want our listeners to hear the, um, the journey that you went through, what it was like in the beginning to hear some of the struggles that you went through because... For you to be where you are now, it sounds like it, it took you time to figure those things out. Um, so tell us some of the, the challenges and the struggles you had in the beginning. Um, and the beginning being whether it be um, when she was transitioned into skilled nursing or perhaps some of the challenges that you had, um, you know, really trying to care for her as her daughter. So the biggest challenge that I had as I look back on the experience in the past few years is that my relationship with my mom completely evolved. So I have been very close to my mom and we had taken a number of international trips together and then we ended up on an RV trip for 10 days through 11 national parks. And we just had the time of our life. We laughed ourselves silly. It was just such a wonderful trip. We went to the Grand Canyon and Yosemite and Yellowstone, and it, it was just wonderful. And that evolved eventually to a point where I really couldn't stand being with my mom. I just didn't like the person that she had become, and I didn't understand why she was acting like this. Mm. But the moment that she got the diagnosis for dementia, I thought, oh my gosh, I look back after all these things that had happened over years, and I realized it was due to dementia. Mm. So I actually wrote this fictitious letter from my mom, or from a mom, to a daughter about real things that happened and the explanation for them. Dear daughter, during the past few years we seem to have grown apart. I know that you're increasingly frustrated and upset with things that I've said and with my baffling actions. Let me try to explain. My incessant criticizing of everything about you is because it's my only way of interacting with you since I can no longer carry on a conversation. This is the reason why I constantly correct you. It's the closest that I can come to a dialogue between us. When I don't invite you to sit with my friends at lunch as they do with their visiting children, it's not because I'm not proud of you, as you must surmise, but because the words escape me to introduce you or talk about you. When I embarrass you in front of people, it's because I don't recognize that my words will hurt you. And I only know that I'm grateful that some words actually tumble out of my mouth. When things I say or do seem mean, I've been told that I probably had a small stroke in the front part of my brain that's affected my judgment. When I don't want to go to the movies or go shopping or do anything with you, 
It's because I'm not sure how to get there any longer, and I can't tell you the directions. When you walk in after traveling for eight hours, and I say that I need to watch the local news, it's because I can't find the words to converse with you. It's not because I'm not thrilled to see you. When I do talk, it's usually something that I fabricated, because those words seem to come easy. I believe it's the truth. When you want to sleep because you're on a different time zone and I wake you up early while I'm in the kitchen and you're close by because I need to stick to the schedule which I've known for years. All the times that you called and I said I couldn't hear you or I couldn't talk because I was getting ready to go to lunch or to watch my favorite TV program, it wasn't because I didn't want the conversation but because my words are lost. When you say something funny, I don't laugh any longer because the words don't have the nuance of humor for me. When you do something nice, like walk in with flowers, and I don't thank you, it's because I can't express my feelings. For over a decade, I've hidden my slow memory loss from you. You used to count down the days when we'd be together. I realize now you probably dread the day you'll have to spend time with me. Please remember the time when I was kind, a great conversationalist, and fun to be around. My dementia has robbed us, but I'm counting on your mind to sustain great memories for both of us. Love, Mom. It's beautiful. Thank you. You're right, it was very frustrating sometimes. So how did you come up with the idea to write this story? This letter? Because I kept running into people who would tell me about these things about their parents. All my parents do is criticize me, or they don't laugh, or they don't appreciate what I do. And I've always thought in the back of my mind, well, this person, this parent, is probably beginning to get into dementia. They're probably beginning to slow slide into dementia. And so I've started talking to people about this. And then I thought, you know what, I should write this down to share with other people so that they can recognize their parents and that they don't go through years and years of not appreciating their parents. And like me, I was dreading to be with my mom. And they can just really appreciate that this is the face of dementia and the personality changes. One of the things I heard you say in different ways is, I don't have the words, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I think that's, I think that's an important thing. And you, and you say it in different ways, you know, like when you don't come and I don't invite you to sit with my friends, I, I can't hold a conversation, you know, when when you come in and you give me flowers, I don't say anything. I don't have the words. And so I find that um, and really interesting because what you're providing people listening is an opportunity to really shift their perception, not only of the illness and the disease, but also of the person sitting across from them. Um, and so before, before we get into some more specifics, I think, for our listeners, um, can you help us understand the shift that occurred for you? So when you went from frustration with your mom and not wanting to see her and how you yourself transitioned into seeing her differently and approaching your encounters differently. 
Well, for me, it was a total enlightenment to learn that she had dementia, and then I understood everything. And then I looked at her as somebody who was going to be changing over the years, and that I needed to adjust as well. It reminds me of the circle of life where the parent starts becoming the child, and the child becomes the parent. And I realized that my perception of this person would need to change, and I'd need to adjust it every time I saw her, because during the last year, the changes month to month was unbelievable. And then the last six weeks, I actually moved to Florida when she could no longer feed herself. And so for the, so I, I want you to share with the listeners where this letter is and some of the information that you've written. So where have you shared this information? Well, I actually put this into a document that I wrote for the facility. I happened to meet a lot of people at the facility, the children, the adult children. And many of them told me that they just couldn't stand to be around their parent because they couldn't deal with it. And then I met other people when I told them that I was moving to Florida to be with my mom, and oftentimes people would say to me, oh, I wish I had spent more time with my mom. Mm. So I wrote this document in hopes that people could read it and maybe reassess how they should act toward their parent, and that when the parent passed away, that there would be no regrets. Mm. And that was my goal, to write something that people would read and they would be able to deal with the parent on a different basis and see their parent differently. Yeah, I like that uh, notion of, you know, no regrets. Um, And one of the things I remember reading, because you had shared this document with me prior to the podcast, is, um, and, and you had just talked about the circle of life, which reminded me, of how we might sort of take on the parental role in a way that is is detrimental to our parents. So we become paternalistic in that we start telling them what to do. Well, what I found in visiting with the children of the people who were in the facility is that they were very commanding of their parents. Sit down, use the walker, drink your juice, do this, do that. And you sort of feel that way when the roles are reversed and you start becoming the parent and the parent becomes the child. Mm-hmm. But what I realized is that there's so much independence that's lost mm-hmm. by the parent when they go into a facility. I mean, everything is lost. There's no lock on the door, there's no money, there everything. No driving, no keys. And I realized that we really need to step back and not be this helicopter child where Mm -hmm. we're hovering over our parent and saying, do this, do that, and really ask them. Everything should, in my opinion, which I tried to do, was to keep into a question. Mm -hmm. Would you like to sit down now? Would you like to drink your juice now? Ask questions so that at least there's some authority or independence that still exists. And I find that the 
the parents get very upset. You know, leave me alone. I don't want to do that. And they get mad. And I think it's this frustration that they have, that they've lost so much independence. Yeah. It makes me think of, um, you know, in healthcare, this desire um, to, especially like in shared decision making is what you're making me think of, and um, allowing autonomy. You know, so patient autonomy, I'd like to not take the medication. Or could you tell me about medications um, that aren't going to have uh, side effects that, you know, affect my vertigo? Or, you know, and, and really engaging with the person as opposed to being paternalistic towards your own parents and telling them what to do, um, really inviting them into the conversation and the decisions, even if what they're saying doesn't make sense, or even if you disagree, it doesn't mean you can't still ask them and engage them in the conversation and have them be a part of the decisions about their own life, which also makes me think about advanced care planning, and then we get into all other, many other topics. Um, but I'm really hearing you say the importance of asking your parents questions instead of telling them what to do and not being a helicopter child to your own parent, which can be really which can be hard, right? Because you're concerned about your parent. Um, and some, for some of us, you know, that's how we show our concern is by taking care of that person, but not realizing that we're taking their independence and their autonomy away as well. Exactly. So um, I want to offer our listeners some um, additional things that they can consider. I like to start, um, in this case, I'm gonna go back to clinicians, nurses, um, and not just people in um, memory or healthcare facilities, but you know, just for anybody who's treating someone, um, you know, at, who identifies or self-identifies as being a, a senior citizen. Um, what are some things that we can um, consider or should keep in mind um, when dealing, uh, treating? I'm sorry, individuals with dementia and/or Alzheimer's. My mom couldn't talk for probably the last few months, and before that it was one word that she could use, but I realized that there's conversations without words, and it's all about the body language, the touch, the smile, and I think that's really important for clinicians to convey the rapport with somebody when there are no words left. And how about for you as... Um I'm sure your mom saw a number of doctors and nurses and social workers and healthcare providers. What are some things that um, you saw and, and experienced yourself as the daughter to an individual um, who needed who needed care? Well, I realized that the relationship was changing in terms of the parent-child. That was a change, but it was just a new person whom I was meeting the last few months before I moved down there, every month when I came down, there were such changes. And I read a very interesting article years and years ago, and it was about a woman, a parent, who didn't recognize the child, the adult child, and the child had written the article, and she said, I'm not depressed when I go in, and my mom asked me, who am I? She said, I look at it as a new relationship. I'm a new person. I introduce myself, and I start with a new relationship. And I thought, wow, that's really profound, because the issue that so many people have, whom I spoke to, that were visiting parents, was they couldn't deal with it because their parent couldn't remember them. 
Mm. And so I didn't want to be around that person. But I've always kept that in the back of my head so that every time that I saw my mom, I said, this is a new relationship. This is a new day. And there's going to be new conversations. And when we can't speak, there'll be photos of the RV trip, which my mom saw umpteen times. But every time I opened up the book and showed her all the photos, she always had a huge smile on her face because she, I'm sure, remembered our fantastic trip. Excellent. Yeah, just just to share, when I uh, saw my grandmother, she had very advanced dementia, didn't know who I was or my brother. But it was around Christmas time, and the only way we could connect was singing. So there I was with my brother in the middle of this um, senior facility, and we were just breaking out in Christmas songs because my grandmother was a great singer. She was part of the church choir, and she knew every, almost every word of every song. Didn't know who we were, didn't recognize anybody around her, but she remembered um, you know, all of the words to the Christmas songs, and that was our way of connecting. Um, so I love this idea that you're offering people about, you know, a new relationship, you know, and when you saw your mom, it was, as you said, a new day and uh, a new conversation. So now we're transitioning into other things that you might provide as tips and ideas um, for children and loved ones. What other things might you might you suggest? Well, there's this concept of ambiguous loss, which is where... Yes. You lose a parent, not through death, but through some other means, like dementia. And it's it's very hard. I lost my mom years before she died because I couldn't carry on a conversation with her. It was a loss, but she was still there. So I think recognizing that the concept of ambiguous loss and that you feel feel this loss even though the person is still alive and it's not the same as death because nobody's there to support you and you you don't have friends rallying to your side and family members and everything but ambiguous loss I think is is a concept that people probably need to to recognize when they have a parent who is slowly losing their mind so that's one thing. Uh, the other thing that I might just mention is you spoke about music, mm-hmm. and there's a huge amount of evidence about what music does and how it brings out people. And I tried that with my mom. My mom was Irish, and so I thought, oh, let me get some Irish jigs here. <laughs> I brought a CD, lots of CDs, and a CD player, but that didn't do it for my mom, mm-hmm. but I. if you go on YouTube, you can see some unbelievable videos of what happens to people when they start hearing music. They're totally catatonic and not engaged at all, and then all of a sudden they are tapping their fingers and they've got a smile, and mm-hmm. you know, it, it's really amazing. Yeah, music, music really does tap into a different part of our brains, too. Um, And so there's a way to connect. And and what I'm hearing you say is find that way to connect with that person, whether it's through an image or something that they've created or a song that they like to sing or some food, you know, that they like to bake or whatever it is, but find some way to connect with that person. I know some people can't be with the parent because oftentimes they say my parent doesn't recognize me or my parent can't talk or they can't hear me so why bother visiting Mm. 
I think that's sort of a shame because hearing is the last thing to go, is what I've heard. And that even though the, per, the parent may not recognize you, I think it's still important to be present. And in my case, I just took my mom's favorite book, which happened to be Anne of Green Gables. Hmm. She read it when she was 12 and she changed her name. Oh. <laughs> so that had a, a huge impact on her. And I had actually never read the book. Yeah, so I brought that and I read it to her every day. And she was sleeping most of the time, but you know she would raise her head and she'd see me reading and she'd give me a big smile and she knew it was Anne of Green Gables. And I cherish those moments when I think back on them of my reading her favorite book to her and her smiling and seeing me reading it. And that was very much toward the end of her life. Yeah. But I have felt that just the being present with someone is so important and that it doesn't matter whether they're talking or they may or may not hear or they may or may not recognize you, but I believe that you're touching inside somebody and that that's very important to maintain through the end. Well said. We are almost at time. So I wanted to ask Barbara if you have any suggestions or recommendations for either online material or if our listeners can get a copy of the letter that you wrote and some of the suggestions or, or any other advice for resources. Well, the resources that I used in putting the document together, the resources that I used in putting the document together are the uh, Elvin A. Dubin Alzheimer's Resource Center, which okay. is actually in Fort Myers, Florida. Okay. The Alzheimer's of Scotland, which has some great documents. The Alzheimer's Society here in the U.S. The Alzheimer's Society of Canada. And the Rosalind Carter Institute of Caring. I have not published that letter that I wrote and maybe I should think about it, but I guess somebody could get it if they contacted you, Nicole, and you could mm -hmm. let me know and I could send it to them. Excellent. That would be great. So for those of you who are listening, if you'd like a copy of the letter um, that Barbara wrote or any of the other materials, um, you can contact us, which I'll give to everybody in just a minute. Um, and wanted to ask if you have any other final thoughts that you'd like to provide our listeners. I'd just like to encourage everybody who has a parent who's going through dementia to recognize the early signs because it's a great explanation for the change in the personality and that to treat their parent in a way that they have no regrets to the end of life, that they visit them, they talk with them, and they communicate with them in ways other than words, pictures, photos, and reading to them. Well, thank you for sharing your story with us, Barbara, and all of your tips and insights. So we appreciate you being on the podcast. So thank you for coming today. Thank you, Nicole. This has been great. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. We thank you again for joining us. This is Nicole Deffenbaugh with Health Stories.